If you have your Bible, I would love for you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. We're going to focus on a, a couple of verses, but really the entire chapter, really the entire book of Colossians is, is a really good place to read. If you're looking for a, a 2019 or uh, end of 2019 or a New Year's resolution into 2020, looking for a place to start reading, Colossians has a lot of really deep truths to it this morning. I'm going to look at a few verses in Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, and I'm going to talk about checklist Christianity. How many of you all are people who like to make lists, make lists for things, write it out, uh, check mark it off or cross it off as you go. I like lists. Lists help me a lot. Now I have a, a bad habit of making lists and losing lists. I have a bad habit of making lists and not completing everything on the list. I have a bad habit of having a list at the grocery store and getting more than what's on my list. Uh, so while I enjoy lists, they don't necessarily always work the way they're intended to work. But in the right scenario, in the right circumstances, lists can be wonderful things. Whenever I pack for a trip, Hannah packs for me. So I want to make that very clear. But if I ever have to pack for myself to make sure I don't forget anything, I make a list of what I need to pack in my bag. And then as I lay it out on the bed, I put a check mark by it. And then as it's all laid out there to double check as I put it in the bag, I cross it off. So I make a list that I check twice. I'm kind of like Santa Claus when I go on trips, right? I like lists when I go to the store, right? I have a checklist with me. I've got this great app on my phone that as I put it in, I've used it enough now, it sorts it by the aisle at Walmart. Oh, it's wonderful. So when I go to the store, Hannah will start shooting off things we need. We have a deal. I'll do the shopping if she'll make the list and do the cooking. That's fine with me. She'll start shooting stuff off, and instead of it being all crazy, I type it in this app. By the aisle, there it is. When I go through, I can check mark it off, and it's wonderful. I like lists a lot. And for a lot of things, lists work really, really well. But there are some things lists just don't do well in. For instance, my wife's birthday was this week. We had a wonderful day. Uh, we got to uh, go out to eat, just the two of us, and spend some time doing some uh, Christmas and birthday shopping and uh, just some time together. It was a great, uh, great celebration for her birthday. But I started to think about making lists. It was kind of just, what do you want to do, honey? Let's go and do. No list involved. But can you imagine if I woke her up that morning and I said, okay, I've got a list of activities we're going to do today for your birthday. Activity number one is I'm going to make you breakfast. And she says, I'm not ready for breakfast yet. And I said, I'm sorry, it's on the list. So you need to sit there while I go and make breakfast for you. First of all, anytime I cook anything is a bad idea. But let's just assume I cook her a good breakfast. And she's not hungry, but she eats it because, hey, it's my birthday and he's celebrating. That's fine. All right, uh, number two, I want to take you out to lunch. Well, honey, I don't really want to get out of the house before noon. I just want to laze around. It's my birthday. I'm sorry, it's on the list, honey. And I'm taking you out to eat to Chick-fil-A because that's where everybody wants to go on their birthday, right? It's on the list, right? So we have to get, and so she gets up and she gets ready, and then, and then about 11.55, my ringer goes off on my phone, and I go, you know what? I remember, because it's on the list. Honey, I love you. Happy birthday. I've told you. I've crossed that off. Okay, got that one done. And uh, the gift that you wanted, that's great, and I've got it for you, and okay, are you going to give it to me? Not yet. That's not scheduled yet. It's later on on the list. And how well would that list have worked on her birthday? Not real well, right? Some things lists go really well with. Some things lists go really poorly with. 
I'm reminded of the, the guy, I, I love this illustration, I've told it a number of times, uh, the man who never told his wife that he loved her, right? And, and so one day, uh, she finally said, why don't you ever say you love me? And he said, I told you the day we got married, and if anything changes, I'll let you know, you know? Um, it wasn't on his list of things to do, right? Lists work great in some scenarios, and in some ways, they just fall flat. I think a lot of times in our faith, we like to make lists, things that we're going to do to make sure we grow in our faith. And before we wrap up this morning, I'm going to encourage you, actually, to make a list at the end of this sermon. Maybe make some checkmark things that we can do, but the entire sermon kind of goes against that. Our faith is not something that can be checkmarked off. It's 2020, just around the corner. Wednesday will be the first day of a new year. And many of you are going to make New Year's resolutions. Some of you have already made some New Year's resolutions. I've heard some of your New Year's resolutions, and they're wonderful. One of the most common New Year's resolutions for churches and for believers is, I'm going to read the Bible every day, or I'm going to read the Bible through in a year, or I'm going to read the New Testament through in a year. And So we have this reading plan which is wonderful, by the way. I hope you do have a Bible reading plan, but let me show you how this typically works. We have a Bible reading plan, 365 days, whether it's through the entire Bible or through a portion of the Bible or just just sections. And we get to day one, January 1st, and we're excited. We have our list in front of us, and it says read Genesis chapters, whatever. We read those few chapters, we put a check mark by it, and we smile. God, this is going to be a new year. January 2nd rolls around. We're still pretty gung-ho. We pull our list out, and we realize that we're kind of aggressive with our reading plan, and there's a lot of reading to do, but we're going to do it because this is something that we're, we're passionate about. And day two, January 2nd, we, we read the Bible, we get through our passage, and we put a check mark by it, and we think, you know what? I'm going to push through this, and we're going to have a good year. By day three, everything goes haywire. Uh, day three, uh, the kids uh, are up early and when we're supposed to be reading or, or we're, we're distracted by some different circumstances. We get a phone call that pulls us away. Maybe something's going on at work and, and everything just is stressful and you think, I've got to find time to read. And so after a crazy, hectic day, you realize you've not read your, your required reading for the day. And so you sit down in bed and you very sleepily struggle through a few chapters of the Bible. You don't remember most of it, but you grab your piece of paper you take your pen out, you check mark it off, three for three. We're doing it. Tomorrow will be better for sure. Tomorrow may be better, or it may not be. And maybe it's the fifth or the sixth day. Maybe you even make it a full month, but at some point, you find yourself looking at that list with gaps in your check marks, don't you? And you're trying to catch up, right? You, you've missed day seven, and so you've combined seven and eight, but really that's been overwhelming. And so when you're trying to catch up, you end up missing key passages. And by the end of January, you look at your list and you just decide, I can't do this. And you lose your list. Maybe you throw it away. Maybe you don't even mean to stop reading. You just get too busy and you don't. But we get so focused on the check marks that go next to the list. If you're honest with yourself, you can't remember anything you read anyways. It was something about Abraham, right? He did something with his son that seemed weird. But I can't remember what was going on in my reading, and it's just not worth the extra time and the extra hassle. I think a lot of us have a checklist Christianity. 
We have this idea that in order to grow with our faith, we need to write down a firm and solid plan, and we have to stick to what's on the list. If we'll only read the Bible this much a day, if we'll only set aside this much time to pray, if we'll only make sure we go to church at certain times and certain number of Sundays a year, if we only do these things, our faith will grow. And what we find is we strive to work so hard to make our faith everything we think it should be that we get frustrated We end up throwing our list away and we end up the same as we were when we started or maybe even worse. When Paul is writing to the church in uh, uh, Colossae, he's writing to the, the Colossians and he's telling them, you don't have to work and fight to grow your faith. He's really addressing a very specific problem the church was having. Uh, the, the people there were, were influenced by some, uh, some outside religious influences. Um, they sounded really good. and We don't know exactly what the, the heresy or false teaching was. Uh, but what we do know is it was trying to add, do this and do that. Some people have speculated that it was kind of this pagan spiritual religion that, that required these, these extra sacrificial type things. Others have thought maybe it was Judaizers telling them they have to be Jewish before they can be Christians. Now, others have speculated it was something called Gnosticism, which, which required uh, basically your, your body and your flesh to be separate and had these little ordinances and things you had to do to, to be religious. We don't really know exactly what the false teaching was, but we know the people in this church were striving really hard to be religious. They wanted to do all the right things. And Paul writes to them. When he gets to chapter 2, he writes these words in Colossians 2, 20-23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you're still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Here's what Paul is writing to them. You have been saved by grace, apart from any works, apart from any special spiritual thing. Why then, now that you are saved, are you continuing to live a life that says, I have to work for it? But why are you submitting to these, these rules? Do not taste, do not touch, don't do these things. Why, why are you trying to, to make a list to make yourself more religious? And I love in verse 23 that Paul points out what it is. They have an appearance of wisdom. They seem smart. They make you think you're getting somewhere, but... But really, they have no value in stopping your sinful life. This morning, I want to talk about checklist Christianity. What the goal of Christian living is for you and for me. There's a danger in preaching a sermon like this. There's a danger in Paul writing to this church. There's a danger in us communicating this truth of freedom. And that is, we will assume then that the goal of Christian living is to do whatever we want. And we don't have to worry about living a godly, holy life. And Paul warns about that several other places in his writings, and including the church, uh, to the Colossian church. He's, he's writing to them and saying it's not a, a license to sin. However, he wants us to be very clear. Our actions didn't save us, and our actions don't keep us saved. You see, the goal of Christian living is 
to model what Christ has done, not to improve on your already sinful life. Your goal is not to be better. Your goal is to be perfect like Christ was perfect. Your goal is not self-help. Your goal is to live in salvation. But we're going to look at the entire chapter of Colossians chapter 2 some this morning. But, but there's a, a few truths I want to share with you. And, and if you have your bulletin, you can follow along, take some notes, uh, jot down some references, and, and fill in some blanks. I would love for you to, to learn uh, about what we are in Christ when it comes to holy Christian living. The first is this. If you are a believer in Christ, in Christ there is desire to live holy. This is where your list is a good thing. You look at your life and you say, I ought to be more than what I am. I know I still fall short, and I know I'm not perfect in my faith. By the way, there's not a soul breathing on this planet that has attained a perfect life in the way they live. All of us still struggle and fall, and all of us still will to the day we die. But in Christ, you have this desire. So you look at yourself and you say, I should be more faithful than what I am. I should be more righteous than what I am. I should be more moral than what I am. I still have sin that I need to get rid of. There's this desire to be more. I want to live a holy life. And so we try so hard to make ourselves holy, right? We we make our list if we do these things. And Paul warns that these things that we do won't make us more holy. But we should at least be thankful for the desire. Look at verse 20 again. He asks a question. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you're still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Let let me share with you this question that Paul's doing. Maybe put it in a little bit easier to understand. If you died to religious practices, look at that word, elemental spirits, okay? That that word's going to come back here in just a moment. What are these elemental spirits? If you died to these these elemental spirits of the world, why do you keep trying to invoke them? If you died to religious practice of having to do good works to be saved, why are you still trying to do good works? That's the million-dollar question Paul wants to ask. So we read earlier in the chapter, all of chapter 2 is leading up to these verses, and in verse 8, we see familiar words again. He warns them, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, and according to, here's that phrase again, the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So what are these spirits? What are these things we supposedly died to? I think it's really easy in context to see. He repeats a phrase twice, just using different words. So he says, according to human tradition and according to the elemental spirits. That's an old literary device to use uh, different words to communicate the same meaning, right? You repeat it in a different way so that it's fully grasped and understand. What have we died to? We've died to human tradition. We've died to trying to work our way into salvation. We've died to to man-made religion. In Christ... You never have and never could work for your salvation. You died to having to do it yourself. In Christ, you are trusting that God has done it for you. Are traditions okay? We have some wonderful traditions at our church. How many of you all were here for our Christmas Eve service this year? I love that tradition for our church. It's a beautiful service, very traditional in that we do pretty much the same things every year. 
and nobody gets bored and tired of it, right? We, we love circling around the sanctuary with our candles and, and seeing the beautiful light and singing Silent Night. These traditions are wonderful things. In a lot of ways, traditions are, are beautiful and God-honoring and wonderful. But none of those traditions make us more holy or right with God, do they? What happens if next year on December 24th, we gathered together and didn't have candles? Would you worship? What if instead of, of singing Silent Night a cappella, we sang a, a praise chorus that mentioned Christmas in one of the verses, but really was more about worshiping God throughout his life, throughout the, the life of Christ? What if we did that with a full band and drums instead of lighting candles and singing Silent Night? Would that make us more or less holy? The tradition's beautiful. The tradition is good. We will, by the way, continue the tradition, but it does not make our relationship with God stronger. No work does. You have died to striving to try to make things better. You no longer have to be working on your salvation. As a matter of fact, it tells us, Paul tells us, that this human tradition, this elemental spirits, are not according to Christ. When you try to make a checklist, you're rebelling against the grace that God has given you. When you try to make your faith something you work on, it is anti-Christian. That's why we, we read, even with these desires, in, in verse uh, 23, that they have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism. By the way, asceticism is, is severe discipline to try to make yourself more holy. Right? They have this appearance of wisdom. If I did these things, certainly I'd be more religious. But in the reality, they have no value in stopping your sinful indulgence of the flesh. You can be thankful that you have a desire to live holy, but don't let that desire to live holy motivate you to, to save yourself. Your desire is put in by God, and God will bring about your holy life. In Christ, there's a desire to live holy, but, but here's the hope we have. Not that you can live more holy, but that in Christ, there is authority to live holy. And this is a very important distinction between there is a desire and there is authority. The desire says, I have to do something. The authority says, it's already been done. In Christ, there is authority to live holy. Look with me in verses 9 and 10. Talking about Christ, Paul says, In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Paul says, I want you to know that in Christ, he has everything you need for a holy life. The authority to make you more holy. Paul spends the next few verses telling us how we're united with Christ in this authority. He says we're united with a spiritual circumcision in verses 11 and 13. He says we're united through our baptism in verse 12. He says we're united in resurrection from the dead and, and a life of sin in verses 12 and 13. We have a unity with Christ which gives us a new life. And all the authority that Christ has to live holy has now been given to you. You know, Christ never went around with a checklist of things he should do or not do. Instead, Christ just trusted the Father and lived according to his word. But we don't see Jesus going, feed the 5,000, check. Let me see if I can heal a, a blind man now. Right? 
We didn't see Jesus going around going, uh, smite the Pharisees, turn over some tables. I got that knocked off my list. Instead, as he lived his life, he simply lived under the authority of the Father, saying, God, you will grow me in my faith. And we have that same authority, according to Paul, through our unity with Christ. That's why in verses 13 and 14, Paul writes, You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You had no power at all. But God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You know, God took your desire to work a holy life and nailed it to a cross. He canceled all of your works that fell short and he gave you the authority of the perfect Christ. Your Christian life isn't about check-marking boxes. Your Christian life is about modeling Christ's authority. In Christ, you have the ability, the authority to live a holy life. And that leads us to our, our last truth. In Christ, then, you are free to live holy. There is freedom to live holy. This freedom we have allows us to do things that, that our checklists won't let us do. Maybe you've been to some churches that, that have a legalistic nature to them. And by the way, those legalistic practices are there for a good reason. They, they have some wisdom behind them. There are some churches, for instance, that are, are very strict. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. If you are not a member, you cannot serve at our church. It's not a, a bad practice to have in some cases because you, you don't want just anybody coming in off the street that you've never met before, say, working with your children, right? You don't want someone who's at the bars on Friday night standing up and, and trying to lead people in worship on Sunday mornings. There, there's some accountability that goes in there, and membership is, is a good rule to put in place. Some churches say, unless you're a member of our church, you can't take the Lord's Supper. I know some pastors who very, feel very passionately about that. And you know what? I, I understand where that's coming from. Here's why they say that. As a pastor, do you know I'm told I have the responsibility over the flock that God has given me? We also read Paul's words in, in 1 Corinthians that if anyone takes the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, it, it, there's condemnation and maybe even death that comes with that. Like, there's some serious problems with taking the Lord's Supper without a, a right relationship with God. And then I, as a pastor, have the responsibility to, to give the Lord's Supper to people who may take it unworthily. I can understand why pastors say, listen, it's, it's just our church that can take the Lord's Supper. It makes sense. Another rule in place. The Pharisees did this all the time. You don't want to work on the Sabbath. You don't want to put forth too much effort. So let's make a rule. It's a good rule. Make sure we can only take so many steps on a Sabbath. That way we don't, we don't walk too far. It's not a bad rule. It's a good idea. We don't want to overexert ourselves. We want to make sure we're honoring God's commandment. Little by little, we take these human traditions and we apply them to, to our faith and we strip away the freedom that God has given us, don't we? That's not to say those guardrails aren't appropriate. It's not to say that they're not okay or even that they're sinful. What it is to say is we must be careful that we don't rob God of giving us freedom. That's why, by the way, Paul looks at them and, and in quotations in verse 21, he mockingly says these traditions are do not touch or do not eat, right? Don't live by those things. You have freedom in Christ. 
Verses 16 through 18, Paul says, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink. Don't let people tell you what you can eat. Or, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, don't tell people when and how you can worship. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. Again, extreme discipline. And worship of angels, or going on in detail about visions, or puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Don't let anyone tell you you have to do certain things to be a Christian. The truth is, God has given us an immense amount of freedom. We can exploit that, and some people do. We take that to an extreme where we say we can live however we want. I feel the danger in many of our lives is we feel less of a Christian if we don't have our boxes checked. There's freedom you have in Christ. There's liberty you have. And in Christ, and this is the key to all of this, in Christ, He's given you the desire to live holy. Trust His authority and His guidance and enjoy the freedom that God has given you. So as we wrap up this morning, our our idea of checklist Christianity, the question is, how do we know that we're living a holy life? I mean, if we just said there's freedom and live how you want, certainly we would fail and we do. What must we turn to to understand the authority that God has given us? You know, one of your best checklists you can make for 2020, maybe flies in the face of this, but, but helps us understand the freedoms we have. The authority we find in Christ is all contained for us in the authority that he's written down for us. I encourage you this morning, if you want to live a holy life, stop trying to discipline yourself to do everything perfect and read the Bible and do what it says. Let this be your checklist. Instead of saying, I have to pray for five minutes, read the Bible and find out you need to talk to God. (laughs) Instead of saying, I have to read X number of chapters every day, read some of it and find out the truth that God wants to teach you for this day. Instead of sitting here and saying, I need to make sure I make this many gospel conversations, study the scripture and let it reveal to you how God's put people in your life just to share your testimony with. Turn to the word of God instead of your man-made rules and checklists. I want to encourage you to do something, and, and this can undo everything we just preached on, so be very careful with it. But I want to encourage you for the month of January to join me in reading the Bible every day. Here's what I'm going to do. There's 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. A lot of wisdom in the book of Proverbs. I'm going to read Proverbs 1 on January 1st. We we did this back when we we did Luke together. uh, John together. I'm sorry, we did John together. Uh, We did the first day of the month. We did John chapter 1. The second day of the month, we did John chapter 2. And that got us three weeks, 21 chapters. This gets us the entire month of January. I'll share on our Facebook group a short video just kind of of what I've read and let you comment what God has read there. But but can I warn you not to make this into a checklist? Instead of saying I have to read 31 chapters in Proverbs, can we just say I want to read God's Word starting in 2020? I want to open up the Bible, and if I miss a day, I'm not going to try to catch up. I'm just going to pick up where where we're at because my goal is not to read through but to, to be taught. My goal is, is not to checkmark something off. My goal is to know more of what God wants me to do and how he wants me to live. This morning, I wonder if we can take our resolutions, our man-made rules, and we can set them aside and pick up the word of God in 2020 and say, Lord, what does holy living look like? How do I model what you've done for me in salvation? 
Let's pray together. Father, it's so amazing to think that we were saved by grace. I didn't do anything to earn salvation. Lord, it's so comforting to know that I can't do anything to keep my salvation. Lord, if, if tomorrow I failed miserably, you still saved me. If I forget to read my Bible for a week straight, you still love me. Lord, if I don't check all the boxes that I think a, a Christian should be, my salvation and my standing before you doesn't change. Father, you saved me from a life of trying to work my way towards faithfulness. Lord, help me now to live my life with the freedom that you've given. Lord, let my checklist not be my thoughts and ideas. Let my checklist be your word. Lord, let me read what your word says and let me live it out. Where your word says don't, Lord, let me not. Where your word says do, Lord, give me strength to do. Lord, let everything I do from this moment forward not be based on my own wisdom, the appearance of wisdom, this man-made righteousness, but let it be putting my trust and my faith in your salvation and in your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen.